Welcome to World House Radio Stories of Home. I'm Sarah Tran. I'm host of this weekly podcast that brings you interviews with leaders and innovators in the fields of housing and design. Each week we discuss the issues and solutions surrounding housing from the local and global perspectives. This week we are exploring the intersection of two very powerful systems at work, both within and outside of the home. Food and identity are intricately linked. The saying, you are what you eat, reverberates now more than ever as the food we eat is produced and transported from far away and made from ingredients that are synthesized and almost impossible to pronounce. A recent article in the New York Times highlights our increasing disconnection to our food system, explaining that what you eat has everything to do with how much money you have, particularly when it's cheaper to buy a package of Twinkies than a bunch of carrots. This article also looks at the power of U.S. government farm subsidies to determining what we and our children are eating, from our choices at the supermarket to those in the school cafeteria. Those who decide to grow their own food are taking back the ability to make the right decisions for themselves, what fruits and vegetables to plant and how to organically grow them. For almost 14 years, the South Central farmers were doing just that. This 14-acre farm located in South Central Los Angeles provided 350 families with the ability to grow their own produce, allowing them to significantly subsidize their family food budget and offering them a meaningful connection to the land that is often impossible to have in an urban city environment. This urban oasis stood out. Satellite views of L.A. showed two large rectangles of green surrounded by isolated industrial warehouses and dense urban poverty. It was a hub of community involvement spurring several other initiatives around health, the environment, and economic justice issues. Unfortunately, the farm now lies fallow. This month marks the one-year anniversary of the farmer's final eviction from the land. After years of protests, fundraising efforts, and the involvement of several high-profile celebrities and activists, including Joan Baez, Daryl Hannah, and Leonardo DiCaprio, the land was given back to the developer who had left it derelict years before the city had made it available to the farmers. Police force and bulldozers were used to rid the land of both the farmers and their creations. Protesters were arrested, and the 14 biologically diverse acres of trees and plants were raised. Here to talk more about the South Central farmers and their continuing struggle to make urban farming an option for the people of South Central L.A. is Tezo Zomek. He is the elected leader of the original South Central farmers and the manager of one of the ongoing cooperatives that emerged from the farm's activities. Tezo, thank you for being a guest on World House Radio. Can you talk about the South Central farm and how it started and who has benefited from the farm? The South Central farm was... Um a project or a mitigation that was made by Mayor Tom Bradley after the 1992 uprisings in L.A. That's, uh, if anybody knows, the Rodney King affair, where an all-white jury basically let off uh, police officers, even though there was blatant video that somebody was basically abused. And the community rose up against such an injustice. And part of the mitigation that the mayor made available to the impoverished community of South Central was 14-acre piece of land that was three miles from City Hall 
in Los Angeles City Hall. And uh, it was basically an industrial warehouse site that was had been abandoned for many, many years. It was basically land banked by a developer, one of the developers by the name of Ralph Horowitz. And so the farm uh, basically was a project that was put together to help impoverished people help themselves. And it, it ended up being a very successful project. And these are the kinds of projects where people engage were done more as lip service. And then their hope is that the project fails and then they can you know, say, yeah, we told you so. You have to stick with the existing system. There are no alternatives. The free market will take care of you. The free market has a soul. And that's the experiment that was known as the South Central Farm. And it you know, became a very resilient place of 350 families. Uh, a lot of them are very uh, low income. A lot of them, uh, about a third of them senior citizens. A lot of them disabled on disability, uh, recovering from illnesses. And trying to, and uh, as euphemistically known as uh, workers who have been disengaged from the economy. And so that's what the constituency was made up at that place. And my father was one of the original organizers of this place, and he himself was a disabled worker or a disengaged worker from the mainstream economy. For people who are not familiar with South Central LA and where the farm is located, I'm just wondering if you can describe the area of LA and then also at the peak of the farm's existence, if you walk through it and describing what it looked like and what was being grown there and who you would find on an average day working the plots. The the farm is located in what's called uh, South Central LA, and the particular zip code is 90058. It is the most concentrated zip code for poverty in the city of L.A. It has basically been an abandoned area. It's usually used as, as a commerce way where, you know, you have semis spewing suit into the community and usually using it during the day and at night it's basically abandoned. And this place, this is where, you know, we were able to put a farm together and we had such a biological diversity that an environmental anthropologist from the University of Washington, uh, Dr. Pena, he went and did a study and he basically concluded that there were over 150 different indigenous plants more diverse than the UCLA Botanical Garden. So, you know, this, this should give you an idea of the magnitude of diversity and not only the, of the plants, but also the people. It was uh, basically a conglomeration of a heterotopia of many different kinds of people. And and that area being the lowest, the fifth lowest in income in the whole city, in the whole county of L.A., gave you an idea that people were making about $20,000 a year. When you pay rent, $600, it leaves you about $200 to survive on. And that is a very stark a state of deprivation that, that people uh, live in, and they must adapt and come up with resilient ways to survive. And the farm basically allowed people to grow food to feed themselves. And so normally on a day you would see a lot of elderly individuals, grandmothers babysitting their kids, community members walking through. You would have had over 150 different types of indigenous and Mesoamerican plants to observe, things that you've never seen in this region of the country. And so it was very fantastic in that way. Everything around the place was all recycled. The land was recycled. The fences were recycled. You know, any kind of thing that you saw, a lot of these things were basically things that people adapted from the environment to uh, some utilitarian purpose. And so that was a kind of a picture of what the farm was about. Most of the people that worked on it were from right around that area, so it really was the center of the community? 
It was basically that. It was a place where people came together. It was a place where in the weekends you had over a thousand people. None of the parks in L.A., with the exception perhaps of Griffith Park, which is thousand acre park, that you would have more than a thousand people in an area. This was a, a fantastic place, and it wasn't controlled by the city. It was controlled by the community, and that in itself was a threat. That people had own sovereignty. It was controlled by the people. It was managed by the people. It was run by the people, and so it was a it was a, a great exercise in popular democracy. I noticed from the website there are a lot of programs that have spun off from the farm. Can you talk about some of those other、uh, initiatives that came as a result? And in 2003, we had made a very concerted effort to try to come up with a way to save the farm when it was basically sold back to the same developer in a backroom deal. With a lot of、uh, secrecy, and then you know that was the basis of our lawsuit against the city and Ralph Horowitz. That if this was such a good deal for the community, why was it done behind closed doors? Why was it thirteen million dollars under market value? And so we struggled for almost three years, and、uh, we raised the money. And we just happened to be the wrong color of people. And the end, Ralph Horowitz said, "I will not sell to those people," indicating that we were different than his kind of people. So it didn't matter that the money was there. He basically had decided that、uh, we weren't the right kind of people that he was interested in. So therefore, he wasn't going to sell. And so the land has laid fallow for over a year. It's been raised and re-raised, and everything's been stripped off of it. But One of the things that we felt as a community was that, regardless of the situation, none of the needs of the community were being answered by the care of the state, which is what we assume that the state functionality is the care of the people, and that because these communities have nothing to exchange with the mainstream, greases the economy. They've basically been isolated into a state of deprivation through、uh, highly urbanization and. You know, concentrated poverty, and so、uh, the, the projects that arose out of this what we call the Health and Education Fund, which is to continue to educate our community about the kinds of products that they're consuming. The, you know, the the markets in those areas bring in product from basically. The large agribusiness, which tends to laden their products with extreme, you know, pesticides and herbicides, and you know, there's been a lot of studies coming out of the UK, a lot of work coming out of the UK and actually Canada too, of the concerns of phenoestrogens and other kinds of residual chemicals that remain on the products, and how they accumulatively affect the health of a community. And so, those are the kinds of things that we try to address within our community. So, the goal of the health and education fund. Is to you know educate and also to create the venue for providing access to this impoverished community to high nutritious, high quality, affordable produce into the communities, and then this is coupled with another project that we call the community-based agriculture. Where we take people from the community.、Uh, in this case, you know, we had to go far to leave some land to grow our own organic produce, and then bring it back into the community, create the distribution systems that bypass the standard existing systems. And so we felt that our community needed to have access to produce. So we've been growing food、uh, close to a, almost a year now. You know, after that, we've been evicted. We've been trying to maintain that project. 
And then additionally, we have another project called the South Central Farmers Action Fund, which is a policy agency. And then, you know, recently we were at the UN under the uh, sixth Permanent Indigenous Forum, on, and we were presented our case and specifically because it dealt with the issue of territory, land, and natural resources. And obviously, our issues uh, was a result of all three. And we argued to the council that they needed to approve the indigenous rights legislation that had been approved on June 29, 2006 in Geneva, had that been in place, we would have had a different set of rights at an international level. Unfortunately, that isn't the case, but we still have an appeal in, uh, pending in court, and we still feel that we have a good chance of turning this around. And specifically because we move it a little further from where everybody has their personal investments, maybe there'll be an opportunity for the truth to be exercised. Can you talk a little bit about the actual police presence and what happened and how it took place? Yes. So what happened is that this happened in two stages. Uh, the first stage was actually coming right up on June 13th of 2006, where we felt that everything was in place. The money was in place. The right people were in place. The mayor was in place. And so pretty much we felt that it was a done deal. It was just a matter like, okay, sign the papers. Let's get this over. And then on June 13th, the, at 5.30 in the morning, the sheriff's department, about 150 sheriff's department, 150 LAPD showed and basically evicted everybody uh, through a process of violence. And then one of the things that we did to be able to really expose the nature of the system was to resist. And we resisted through the process of, of lockdown barrels. We were able to hold them off for over eight hours which was a full day's news of coverage. And, you know, nobody can buy that. And so they evicted us. You know, everybody was heartbroken. And what they did was bring in the bulldozers. And then, again, they attacked the community in a very psychological way, which is by raising people's creations. This is the notion of the power of life, which is what existed in this farm, and the power over life which is what the estate projected, right? They have power over life, not power of life. They don't have the power to give life. They only have the power over life. And that's, you know, historically, that's the justification that's been used for the Darfur massacre, Bosnia. We could go on and on and on. We clearly saw that again. You know, we saw the juxtaposition of the power of life against the power over life. What we did was to show that the state was nothing more than pure, unadulterated, violent force. Because we did everything that we were supposed to do, which is we raised the money, and we reached out to all the millions of people across the EWAS International. So what was left? What was left was that this situation ultimately challenged the very existence and the very construct of power itself. As a result of the eviction from the farm, the South Central farmers sued both the city of Los Angeles as well as the developer Ralph Horowitz? Right, against both of them because they both engage in a non-transparent public activity. And so basically we had to sue them both because they did a, the deal was between them and we were basically the beneficiary party and then we felt that uh, we were excluded out of the process. And you know, the same way that we made the argument that, you know, uh, the same way that Horowitz could have raised the money, we could have raised the money too, but we weren't given that opportunity. He has a lot of money and he has a lot of city hall connections. He's been a staple in the community. He knows where to drop the money. 
There is some farming still going on by some of the original South Central farmers. I read that a nine-acre parcel was made available by one of the city council members to some of the farmers, but this parcel was located under high-tension power lines and that many farmers felt that this wasn't at all a fair trade for the original farmland and that growing vegetables and spending time under the power lines was not something that they wanted to do. And that is, in a sense, adding insult to injury. You know, you are marginalized already. You are in a high state of deprivation from the subsistence of livelihood. And additionally, you're going to be thrown under the power lines, you know, which have been uh, historically linked with leukemia, breast cancer, and all those kinds of things. And then, you know, a lot of our members of our community said, you know, I'm already marginalized. I don't need to be insulted this way. There are some farming activities that are taking place other places. Can you just talk about how that's happening? What happened is some group of people, after everything was evicted, decided to go back to the little community garden plots, which are like 10 by 12. And truly, you know, what we determined that they were not feasible places to grow enough food to make a difference. So what happened in this one place was that people had uh, empirically determined what was an optimum size to grow enough food to really make a difference in your budget. And that's, you know, a, a 10 by 20 or a 20 by 20 or a 20 by 30 plots is really one, what makes a difference for a family. This is something that's been explored in many of the decentralized farming techniques that the high centralization of agriculture is, is actually very effective when it's done over a hundred acres and less than five or six families. And so these are these are technical empirical data that basically say, you know, a farm that is too big is too slow and it's not diverse enough. People determined the size that was economical for them, meant that it made enough economic difference to warrant the investment, you know, versus getting a second job or hustling in another manner. So what's the next step for the South Central farmers? Well, the, the next step for us is the appeal is one of them. We are policy work within the United Nations to continue to advocate for policies that address the food sovereignty issue. And, and I, I really do differentiate myself from the food security issue, which is what the USDA and some of the other groups talk about, you know, just making food accessible. I think ultimately to make a difference, people have to grow their own food and they have to know that they can always go back to a place where they can feel safe about what is going into their products. And specifically, I quote you, the whole issue of xenoestrogens. And there's been some studies where you take two herbicide quad and another one and then you combine them together and they basically sterilize people. So ultimately we are being impacted by not knowing what is or what is not and what we consume. If you could design and build the ideal farm in which the South Central farmers could relocate and rebuild, what would it look like? This is an interesting question. It's not that what the farm should look like is it's what the rest of the city should look to in relationship to the farm. And we have to look at the nature of what cities are. Cities came into existence, you know, the mid-1800s, 1700s. It's a form of way to concentrate workers. And in that process of facilitating the ability to, to get productivity, I'll use the term productivity, out of a community, it was actually easier to concentrate them. And in that sense, it made it really easy for people to render their labor because they had no other way to exist. Cities are an invention 
to facilitate two things, right? The reproduction of the biopolitical power or the force that keeps an economy going. And additionally, we can mediate how that populace trained and educated. If we look at cities, then we have to acknowledge is that centralization really isn't in the benefit of the individual. It's in the benefit of those who need individuals, who can create productivity. And so we have to come back then to the farmers. What does that mean in the relationship of understanding the creation of a perfect farm? Well, you know, we have to then say the farm and the city are in contradiction because they speak about two different kinds of creations, right? So we can create hybrids. But we have to truly understand what the functions of each one of them are. The farm is to facilitate autonomy, to facilitate self-reliance, to facilitate independence. And the city is the opposite. You know, you are ultimately dependent on everything of the city, the infrastructure, the distribution of resources, the distribution of wealth. And ultimately, you have to be mediated to accomplish anything. And so ultimately, then we have to say, is it possible to mitigate these two contrasting views of the world? One is to facilitate the extraction of labor, and the other one is to facilitate the creation of autonomy. Both of these can exist in the same place. What we need to do is we have to facilitate both of them, which, you know, in some cities they actually do. You know, in the East Coast, they have the idea of the commons. In San Luis uh, River, they have the ideas of common pasture lands. And we have these kinds of ideas of common spaces where these just opposed worldviews could actually semi-interface. And then my ideal situation would be that what we need to do is to be centralize these cities and to hybrid them with these kinds of food sovereignty situations where people have access to these kinds of spaces if they wish to or not. What would that look like? Well, you would have decentralized cities with common spaces. You would have urban farms inside cities. You would decentralize the city. The more decentralized a system is, the better its survivability. And, you know, we, we don't need to go too far to see the results of overly centralized systems. Number one, they're not sustainable. Cities occupy 2% of geography, but they consume 75% of resources. What I want to see are cities that have more urban gardens, urban spaces, and common spaces within them, that it is possible to have both of them. And there are examples across the world. I mean, look at what Cuba has to do. You know, they have to do it out of necessity, not out of care of the state in the sense that we're doing this for the good of the people. It's like we're doing this because we've got to survive. I have one more question for you. As someone who's fighting to maintain your connection to the land as both a source of food and identity, what does home mean to you? And you talked a little bit about this, but how would you like to live in the future? Well, I think that this is a, a kind of a, a complex question in, in many ways because we talked about the kind of constructs that we live in. And ultimately, as Chomsky would tell you, you know, is we have a limited set of choices. Many of our choices are manufactured. I don't truly feel that I could honestly answer a question like this because I can speak to the issue of resilient subsistence. You know, we will struggle to maintain, you know, a way of, of being able to connect with our humanity, but that we have a lot of choices within the construct that we live in, it's very limited.
And it's really hard to step out of that contract because we're in it. And no matter how you can imagine a utopia, and I always like to talk about that, you know, all utopians are just opposed against the terror of its antithesis. To talk about a home is kind of a utopian construct. I'm not sure that I know what that would be because I would be basically subscribing myself to the same kind of a utopian dichotomy. If I create a construct of what I believe home to be, uh, I have to terrorize all of those people who oppose uh, my view of, of my utopia. We see this every day, right? Falwell criticized the Teletubbies. You know, his utopia was in contradiction with the Teletubbies. You don't think you could find a definition or find what home could mean to you that would be flexible and open enough that it wouldn't have to directly conflict or create something negative for other people, that it might be encompassing enough that it would allow for everyone? And I think that until more people kind of understand the situation and we get back to what's called our species being, you know, that ultimately we are attached to our biology, I think the choices are very hard. And I think that that is the only place that I would say that I would feel where home is, is when we can all get back to our species being. And I don't want to say it in an essentialist way, you know, I want to say it in a way that valorizes our irreducible nature and our resilience for existence. And that's as close as, uh, as home as we can get. Tezo, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your time and for being a part of World House Radio Stories of Home. To learn more about the South Central Farmers, check out the links on our website, www.worldhouse.ca, where you can find out more about the farmers' current activities. There are also links to a short documentary about the South Central Farmers, as well as a YouTube video covering the destruction of the farm and photographs taken by Jonathan McIntosh, who has made them available to download using the Wikimedia Commons. Also, check out the link to the New York Times article, You Are What You Grow, written by Michael Pollan, in order to better understand the impact of the U.S. Farm Bill and its role in what we eat. The two songs used in today's program are from the Save the Farm 2005 CD. They were recorded during a concert held in November of 2005, organized by the South Central Farmers. A link to this CD can also be found at our website. World House Radio is a project of the Institute Without Boundaries. To learn more about the program and the work we are doing on the World House Project, please visit at www.worldhouse.ca or www.institutewithoutboundaries.com. Join us next week for another episode of World House Radio Stories of Home. This is a war.